This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The End of Policing by Alex Vitale, which is now out in paperback. Recent years have seen an explosion of protest against police brutality and repression. Among activists, journalists, and politicians, the conversation about how to respond to and improve policing has focused on accountability, diversity, training, and community relations. Unfortunately, these reforms will not produce results, either alone or in combination. The core of the problem must be addressed, the nature of modern policing itself. This book attempts to spark public discussion by revealing the tainted origins of modern policing as a tool of social control. It shows how the expansion of police authority is inconsistent with community empowerment, social justice, even public safety. Drawing on groundbreaking research from across the world and covering virtually every area in the increasingly broad range of police work, Alex Vitale demonstrates how law enforcement has come to exacerbate the very problems it is supposed to solve. In contrast, there are places where the robust implementation of policing alternatives, such as legalization, restorative justice, and harm reduction, has led to a decrease in crime, spending, and injustice. The best solution to bad policing may be an end to policing as we know it. The End of Policing by Alex Vitale, out now in paperback from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Bernie Sanders was no doubt too slow to incorporate issues like mass incarceration into the core of his 2016 campaign, and criticism from Black Lives Matter and others was fair and it was just. What's remarkable is that mainstream liberals hit Sanders so hard for failing to win black support, particularly in Southern primaries, but Hillary Clinton's breathtaking failure to win black support across the board in the general election has received so little attention. And Clinton was running against one of the most openly racist candidates in memory. My guest today is Malaika Jabali, and she has a remarkable new piece out in Current Affairs. Jabali reports this story from Wisconsin, where Sanders won his highest level of black support, and where black turnout in the general election plummeted by 86,830 votes between 2012 in 2016. Recently, I spoke to Nikhil Paul Singh about the wrong-headed and never-ending debate over whether it was economics or racism that got Trump elected, which presumes that it has to be just one of the two because the two are somehow unrelated phenomena. This interview is a sequel to that discussion because what Jabali powerfully exposes through on-the-ground reporting in Milwaukee, through historical analysis, and through data is that when we talk about the impact of economic crisis on the 2016 election, the condition of black, poor, and working class people must be at the center. Yet that is so rarely the case. Racism, along with sexism, homophobia, and any form of oppression, always has a political economic context. 
And as Jabali shows, the converse is true as well, because America's capitalist political economy is always expressed through racism. The economic crisis that hit working-class Americans across the board utterly devastated black Americans, wiping out their wealth and foreclosing on their homes. Black people who were already suffering through a long crisis of combined segregation and deindustrialization that shut them off from job opportunities, isolated them in second-class schools, and subjected them to both street violence and police terror. The upshot, as Jabali describes it, is absolutely correct. The Democratic Party's obsession with winning over swing voters or discomfited white suburbanite women is utter folly given their lack of attention to the alienation and disgust that their policies of corporate economics and mass incarceration have produced at the core of their black American base. Before we get this thing rolling, I work hard to cover everything possible that might be of interest to leftists on this podcast, from social reproduction to the recrudescence of fascism in Brazil. And so while this podcast may be free, my labor is not, and I can only keep this up and running, pay my bills, pay my producer, pay my communications coordinator, and all sorts of overhead, because listeners like you support us at patreon.com slash the dig. What's more, you get more than just the happy feeling of not free riding. $5 a month gets you access to our newsletter. $10, and I'll send you either Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism or Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity. $20 or more, and I will send you a load of left-wing books. Okay, here's Malika Jabali, a Brooklyn-based public policy attorney, writer, and activist whose writing has appeared in Glamour, Essence, The Root, and Current Affairs, where she recently published the article we'll be discussing today, The Color of Economic Anxiety. Malika Jabali, welcome to The Dig. Hello, thanks for having me. There are so many, many things wrong with this ongoing, relentless, mind-numbing debate over whether it was, on the one hand, economic anxiety, or on the other hand, racism, that caused Trump's election. And your article exposes one of the biggest and least discussed ones, which is that Black people, in fact, have suffered profound economic crisis, and as a result, in many cases, declined to vote for Hillary Clinton or anyone at all in 2016. Mm -hmm. What's wrong with the debate as it stands right now? And what does it cause political analyses to miss about the condition of poor and working class black people? There's a lot wrong with it. One of them is that it's unjust. I think it puts a little bit too much primacy on basically white supremacy, um, not just in terms of the impact that it has on Trump, which no doubt it does have, have an impact on it. But it also plays into, I guess, this myth that white rural feelings, the feelings of white conservatives are supreme over the experiences of, of anybody else. So one is a matter of justice. One, The second is just kind of a matter of truth because it belies what is actually happening in the Midwest and what caused, um, in, in one respect, Hillary Clinton's defeat. There are multiple factors, obviously, involved in the 2016 election. And the reason why I think it's important to, quote unquote, relitigate 2016 is because it's still having implications today. 
it could have implications for our political landscape in the future, in the very near future, if we're looking at 2020 and midterms. So just a matter of uh, truth and unearthing what people are experiencing on the ground due to capitalism's failures. And we don't think about how it affects Black people. So that would be the answer to your first question of, of why it's important to, to talk about that. And in terms of the politics, I mean, it, as I said, could really change what the Democratic Party wants to do. And it, they're forced to stare um, these issues in the face. I don't think they can avoid them anymore. The sort of explanation of Trump won because many white people are racist is obviously like on, on some level true because Trump was an open and is an open racist and many white people are racist. But that's also sort of like a historical constant. So it it doesn't do much for explaining change over Precisely. time and like why Trump in 2016. And so on the one hand, and I spoke to Nikhil Paul Singh about this recently, like we have to locate racism within political economy throughout history but then what your article adds to this is that, guess what? Like, black people also live in American, under American capitalism as well. Precisely. So, you know, one of the things with that is, you know, to say that he won because of white supremacy is true. It is also true, as you implied, that white, that black uh, working class people are experiencing the brunt of capitalism. And in many places, it's even worse. So in the Midwest, where this piece is focused and specifically in Milwaukee, the voter turnout was the lowest in history for black voters. So when people use, you know, kind of this phrase that Trump flipped a lot of these, you know, democratic strongholds and he flipped them red, that's not quite the reality. The flip really occurred because of democratic base and it goes across the base, not just black voters, but, you know, people who probably align as progressives, folks who normally vote democratic, they're under that large democratic umbrella they, for the most part, did not show up in similar numbers as 2012 or 2008 or 2004. If Hillary Clinton just won three states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, she would have won the election. And we see that that is the heart of the Rust Belt. So we can look at the numbers and take a superficial glance at it and say, oh, he flipped it because he won. <laughs> when the reality is he flipped it because Hillary Clinton didn't bring her base out. Yeah. And I think that while we definitely need to think about why Trump won, that's been often the exclusive way that the election's outcome is framed. And as you point out, very importantly, Hillary Clinton really lost. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it, that's it. Arguably, like more so than like Trump won, but Clinton lost more than he won. I think. Right. Yes, and when you and it's not even a you know it's not a thought. It's if you look at the numbers, um, he gained about four hundred thousand more voters than Mitt Romney between twenty twelve and twenty sixteen in those three states that I mentioned, and those are the three states that turned the election that have been traditionally Democratic. I li I like that it's not a it's not a thought it's a uh, it's a fact. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just look. It's you know, I'm I'm an attorney by trade, so we like to be you know a little bit more um, cautious when we say things. But this is one of those things where I could say this is this is what the data says. I'll stipulate to that. <laughs> and he won four hundred thousand, about four hundred thousand more votes than Mitt Romney in four years. Of course, three states. You would assume if there's not some sort of weird massive 
um, migration they're going to gain in population. So while he won 400,000 more votes, Hillary Clinton lost lost nearly 700,000 votes. So he got a 400,000 net growth. She lost almost a million, a quarter, three uh, quarters of a million votes in those three states. And you write that in Wisconsin, black voter turnout declined by 86,830 votes between 2012 and 2016. And Clinton lost the state by just 22,748 votes. Right. And it's important to note, too, that white voter turnout actually fell in Wisconsin as well. So it went down by about one percent. And forgive me if I'm just going through, you know, the numbers too much. But I think it's important to look at that data because, to be frank, I have not seen anyone really dissected other than kind of the Brookings report, some Pew studies. But it hasn't really been given the context that I believe it deserves when you think about what happened um, in the Midwest and how how it shifted the election. The white voter turnout fell by 1% in Wisconsin. So I guess this kind of the trope that that he had this huge surge of white conservatism, that's true in pockets, but you can't really say that for Wisconsin because fewer white people turned out. And what's worse is that even fewer black people turned out as well. And it was a historic low. It's never been, the black voter turnout in Wisconsin has never been lower in history. You argue not only that Democrats who stayed home were more a more important factor than Democrats who switched to Trump. But you also argue more provocatively, but I think quite importantly, that Democratic voters staying home was more important, far more important than Republican voter suppression. And I want to ask, in your opinion, what the right way to think about voter suppression is, because obviously Republicans are no doubt intent on using every means at their disposal to keep black people and anyone who they think will vote against them from voting. But The problem that I think you're getting at is that when liberals emphasize voter suppression and isolation from the bigger picture, they ignore this reality that's very inconvenient for them, which is that such a huge, larger portion of black people simply chose not to vote for Clinton. Precisely. I think it's in these cases, it's important to have the studies. Unfortunately, there have not been enough focused on uh, black voter attitudes because the automatic assumption is that they either their vote was either suppressed or, um, you know, white voters just came out in huge numbers. So the narrative just isn't being being, um, I think, considered enough because black people are like the objects of this election, not the subjects, not the not the protagonists of it. Precisely. So I think it's hard to even get those studies if the assumption is that, well, there's no reason to do that because we already know what the answer is, which is white supremacy. So I think a way to think about it is to to actually talk to people, is to have more on the ground reporting, to go into these communities, talk about what they are experiencing. And if you get enough, you know, quantitative and qualitative data, you can find out could you not vote because of A, B, and C? Or did you choose not to vote because of X, Y, and Z? And I was actually having this kind of an online conversation. It wasn't really so much of a debate with one of the Atlantic journalists, uh, Van Newkirk, because he's interested in voter suppression. I'm interested in it as a, I would say I'm a native of Georgia. We see what's happening right now with Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams. It's utterly shameless. Um, Very clear uh, voter suppression tactics. I saw it. When I was in college, 
there was a great documentary about it called American Blackout. I did like a screening of this back in the day. I've been interested in this, these issues for a while. It's like 2004. And I was looking at voter suppression, actually, um, kind of in the South and how it affected Black people around the country with Bush's second term. So these issues are very dear to my heart, um, being in a growing up in a liberal city in a conservative state. And I think we need to be um, a little bit nuanced and understand that, you know, oppression is one issue. And I think suppression has very clear, a very clear, clear connotation with policy. And I think both can happen at the same time. I think in Wisconsin, you did have elements of that. Um, but I think overall, people are feeling oppressed. I think you have a large contingency of Black people who are going through economic vice. When you look at the deindustrialization and disenfranchisement of a lot of Black people in Milwaukee, um, throughout Wisconsin, really. And they're, they're going through oppression. And if you want to say that that is the same thing as suppression, that, that's fine. Um, but those terms mean different things. And if you look at the studies that have come about, a Wisconsin-Madison study, for instance, that said that the top two reasons, and these are in the two most Democratic counties in the state, the top two reasons why people didn't vote were that they weren't interested in generally in the election and they weren't interested in the candidates or they disliked the candidates. There's a census study that I couldn't fit. We just had space constraints. Um, the census, they do a voting supplement every after every major election for the most part. And in the supplement, they polled, you know, millions of people all over the country. And the number one reason why black people said that they did not vote, accounting for about 40 percent, nearly half of the responses were that they weren't interested or they didn't think their vote um, like it would change things, that if they voted for a president, that it would mean much. The uh, bottom two reasons why people said they didn't vote were, you know, things like the polling place had a, too long of a line or it was too hard to get to, to their polling place. And these are the types of things that we associate with voter suppression that accounted for maybe 2% of the poll versus 40%. And that was a similar um, kind of breakdown with the University of Wisconsin-Madison study as well. One of the many things this reflects, I think, is a really core problem with political reporting, which is that when you read anything in the Times or wherever covering a, a local race or state race or a national race playing out in a particular state or city or town, you know, they drop into the diner in a local gas station or wherever. Mm -hmm. And it seems like everyone has an opinion on the race and is voting for one person or the other or trying to decide. And that doesn't reflect reality. So many people in this country are so profoundly alienated mm -hmm. from the political system. I did a story a few years back in southwestern Pennsylvania in the area that Connor Lamb won in these deindustrialized areas near Pittsburgh. And I just made a point of at asking ordinary people somewhat like what you did, you know, what their take was on 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 the political situation. And, and so many people told me they didn't vote, that they did not find politics as they understood them to be relevant to their pretty difficult lives. That's not represented in political reporting, and it's not even represented in the way polling's presented to us. It's always the people who aren't voting aren't there. It's like, oh, this percentage is, because I guess they, I, I don't even understand how it works. I guess they call the non likely voters out of it. So it's like, well, we have 55% for candidate X 
and 45% for candidate Y when people don't vote. <laughs> it's crazy. Right. Right. And in, uh, in Wisconsin, the black voter turnout was 47%. So that is less than half. So basically a minority of people who are registered and eligible to vote voted. When you get to that point, you have to say, okay, we need to come to terms <laughs> with this. And it was a little bit angering to me <laughs> just as a human being, you know, taking off my reporting and journalism hat. It was upsetting to me that if you are a public servant, that you would not kind of come to terms with why that is, why you have a minority of folks who could very well be a part of the political process not interested and you're not asking why. Well, you decided to ask why. And you have a really striking quote from a Milwaukee alderman named uh, Khalif Rainey. He said, we had Baltimore, we had Charlotte, we had Milwaukee. I wonder, how does that factor into a community's confidence in having an African-American president? If during the tenure when we had one, we've seen some of the most atrocious murders by police officers of unarmed black men, We've seen the decline in African-American wealth. Did we lose confidence in the power or the ability of getting things done by a president? Were we coming off of a hangover or fatigue? Do we still have confidence in democracy at all? It was a really powerful quote, and it reminds me of a recent interview I did a few days ago uh, that I'll be airing soon with Barbara Ransby on Black Lives Matter, because there's this contradiction of a black president that got people's hopes up so high, coinciding with, on the one hand, historic economic devastation that disproportionately, that was obviously devastating everywhere, but disproportionately hit black Americans extremely hard. On the other hand, this huge spotlight on police murders and mass incarceration. And it seemed to both play out with the radicalization of black youth by way of Black Lives Matter, but also this deepening alienation from the Democratic Party. Can you say a little bit about about this dynamic of Black Lives Matter, the Great Recession, all of this playing out against the backdrop of, of Obama's presidency? I think it would happen with, you know, any president. I think that there is that there could be a little bit more defeatism if you do see that you there was a historic victory and not a whole lot came out of it. I think for um, to change impact people's daily lives. At the same time, the part of the impetus for me writing this piece was to highlight the 50th anniversary of a variety of industrial uh, rebellions that took place 50 years prior. This was in 1967. One of those rebel those uprisings happened in Milwaukee to protest housing segregation. At the same time, you had the rebellions in Detroit and Newark and throughout the throughout the north and I want to say on the West Coast as well. So this has been an ongoing crisis. It didn't start with Obama, didn't start with the Democrats. It started when black people first arrived here, uh, arrived on the shores of America since before its, its inception. And it's been an ongoing economic crisis for us. And um, I think to be specific, it's the crisis of capitalism. So if you see that the political 
apparatus isn't mitigating it, in some cases it is exacerbating it, then it's going to come up through, uh, through arson. Arson is really kind of in the history. <laughs> you know, this isn't really discussed much, but it's in kind of the, the history of, of resistance amongst black people. Cause we often think about, you know, civil rights, uh, nonviolent protests, but in New York, for instance, where I'm at, arson was a huge part of how they, the state ended up abolishing slavery. So we've had these moments throughout history. We're going to keep having them as long as capitalism and white supremacy thrive. And I do think, of course, to some extent that it was um, a little bit more, I guess, focused and um, it might have perpetuated it a little bit more having a black president and still seeing the same uh, kind of the same experiences. But again, as long as we have capitalism and white supremacy, you're still going to have a lot of people who feel alienated and hopeless to, to the extent that they would feel that there's nothing left to lose anymore. One key part of your argument and one thing that I think is so important about your article is that you make it clear that deindustrialization is very much a black story as well, even though it's often told with a white face. Right. The the percentage of black men between the ages of 25 and 54 in Milwaukee who were employed, you write, fell from 85 percent in 1970 to 52.7% in 2010. And this isn't just the story of jobs moving overseas, but of jobs moving to the suburbs where black people were systematically denied housing. And you write that the city of Milwaukee, where the overwhelming majority of black people in the region lived, live, lost more than three quarters of industrial jobs since the 1960s, and that the entire region's net job growth since the 80s has been in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Can you explain this this longer political economic history that you're telling and why you think that it needs to be part of any analysis of black politics today? I think it's important to talk about that because we often think of segregation as a Southern phenomenon. And when it comes to electoral politics, it actually ends up playing a huge factor. And I think 2016 proved that it played a huge role in in the outcome. So when you look at these urban areas that did not have the same history of Jim Crow segregation, but they still had uh, de facto segregation um, through uh, the real estate market. They did have de jure segregation as well, but it was through real estate contracts, through uh, covenants, through redlining, you know, the, the typical story that we always hear about. And in Milwaukee right now, Wisconsin, I should say, it's the most segregated in the country. That's at least according to most analysts. They consider uh, the city of Milwaukee the most segregated. When you have this long history of, of segregation, I think it um, makes economic issues even more pronounced um, because you're not getting access. You're not able to take advantage of the economic opportunity that is still in the metro area, that's still in the state. So in Milwaukee, for instance, something that, you know, some other details that we couldn't really include um, the state was offered some federal funding for a huge 
transit link. And we see this, I've seen this in, in my home state of Georgia as well, where you, too many NIMBYs, you know, kind of white conservative attitude again of not in my backyard. They didn't want to have to create these links between the city and the metro area where the jobs ended up relocating. And because of that, you have a number of black men who no longer have access to, you know, these jobs in the center, the central uh, city, they're not able to go uh, outside to the suburbs to take advantage of that because, you, you know, it, it requires transit, requires um, funds to be able to get there. And that doesn't just exist in Milwaukee. I've seen it in Detroit. You can find it in, you know, not in New York City, but there is still, you know, a, a good amount of segregation and people are, are getting pushed further and further outside of um, kind of the inner boroughs out to the outer bor boroughs in New York City. And even there, you know, the transportation isn't isn't as great. Like people still rely on a car for that. So it happens all over the country. And so I think it kind of pushes back on the narrative that racism is limited to the South. and you know, all this economic opportunity is available for everybody because it creates huge income and wealth disparities in the Midwest. And it misses the fact that racism just isn't in these, you know, kind of yokels, racists who voted for Trump's heads, but that it's something that we can see in our the very geography of the cities that we live in, in the in the very organization of people in the built environment. That's right. It's also notable in terms of Milwaukee that Scott Walker got his political start in the segregated white suburban bastions of outside the city of Milwaukee. Wisconsin in general is just a, a shit show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in every sense of the word, you would, you know, I talked to some locals there and they acknowledge the fact that it is essentially a lab for the worst conservative policy. They tend to start it in Wisconsin. And, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that the socioeconomic factors for black people there are the worst in the country. And it's easier for them to kind of take advantage of that by introducing these new policies. It's, you know, capitalism and, and crisis is as usual. A related history that you make a point of detailing that's too often left out is the larger historical context of the black great migration. Mm -hmm. A lot of mainstream political analysis of of black politics doesn't really take stock of the fact that so much of the black population outside of the South today only arrived during the 20th century and in some cases towards the end of the 20th century through the 70s. Um, and when that's not emphasized, I think a lot of things go wrong. I think we miss the continuities between oppression in the Jim Crow South and the supposedly free North and also, again, this deeply rooted history of housing and school segregation and job discrimination that set black people up in the North for a continuation of the economic oppression that they were living in in the South. So say a little about the importance of, of including the, the Great Migration into the analyses of black politics in the North where it's so often not recognized. I think the attitudes, the political attitudes of the migrants to begin with. So one thing that I talk about in the article is black people are often treated as a monolith. And there is a rich history of black uh, progressive politics in the Midwest and in Wisconsin that isn't really talked a lot 
uh, talked about a lot. So things like collective bargaining are, uh, um, actually, I think I, a good way of answering this is by connecting it to what Demo uh, Democrats are doing now. Um, so for instance, I'm, I don't know if you've heard that folks like Chris Coons, they've got this new, um, I guess I wouldn't say initiative, but group within Congress called New Democracy, I guess because New Democrats was taken and they didn't <laughs> want to be too <laughs> go against the wheel too much, uh, go against the grain. So they have this theory that folks in the Midwest will feel abandoned if they advance uh, more progressive economic policies. And that just belies really the history of the Midwest. In Wisconsin, they had the longest line of democratic socialist mayors in the country. Collective bargaining was a huge feature of politics, um, excuse me, of like the kind of the economic scene there. A number of the black locals that I spoke to, they were in unions. They retired, you know, working with unions and being union leaders. So there is this rich history that just largely goes untapped in terms of where uh, the tradition of black politics is in the Midwest. There's been a little bit more independence from, I think, traditional um, kind of democratic centrism, democratic liberalism, and it's shifted more to the left, including the, the black mainstream there. So even the NAACP, which we think of as a mainstream pretty nonviolent organization, they were involved in civil unrest in Milwaukee, like the Milwaukee branch of the NAACP were being targeted, like they were the Black Panthers in the Midwest. Fred Hampton comes out of Chicago in the Midwest. The Black Panther Party had a huge influence on Black politics there. In Indiana, in Gary, Indiana, you have the National Black Political Convention in 1972, and they're talking about having an independent Black political party. So folks who were escaping the segregation of the South, there's almost kind of this culture of resistance that bucks the, I think, a lot of the Southern Black tradition. And that has continued to, to today. So when I talk to folks out there and I say, well, you know, they're, they're uh, you know, I'm from the East Coast and people are saying that the Democratic Party could go too far left by embracing, you know, collective bargaining and job guarantees. And they're like, what are people talking about? That is bizarre. Like we were like the originators <laughs> of some of this stuff. Like that makes no sense to them. You know, on a personal note, I grew up in a church that practiced black liberation theology. And we believe that, you know, to be a Christian means you are revolutionary and you fight for the oppressed. We believe that uh, you know, Jesus was black <laughs> and the, the Madonna was black. Was, our church was called the shrine of, is called the shrine of the black Madonna. And that originated in Detroit when Malcolm X had his ballot or the bullet speech where he cautioned black people from kind of blindly, um, embracing centrist, uh, democratic policies that went against their interests. He was speaking to audiences in Detroit and Cleveland. So this is the heart of the Midwest. This is the heart of industrial towns and they're, they're not going to be identical to the politics in the South. And I think both parties underestimate that. On that note, you write that Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign message to black voters wasn't for much that was positive and concrete, but rather just focused against Trump as a threat to black people. And you write, quote, instead of addressing the conservative economic policies that defined the Democratic Party for decades and helped undermine black progress, 
Clinton attempted to appeal to black voters' identity. By targeting a limited conception of this identity, the presidential hopeful failed to appreciate the multitude of black experiences and discounted the ways in which black Midwestern priorities have departed from the Democrats' black Southern firewall. You've already gotten at this a little, but can you say some more about how Clinton and others conflate the conditions and perspectives of black voters in different regions? Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think it helps. Uh, like I said, that I'm I'm from Atlanta, so we've become uh, become known as the black mecca over the last twenty or thirty years. There's actually been a reverse great migration from places like the Midwest, from the West Coast to the South. I grew up seeing, you know, black mayors, black fire chiefs, black police chiefs. Um, the middle class in in Georgia Georgia is, you know, well represented by black folks. So I was used to seeing um, kind of these black middle class values and representation in government, economic opportunity. So people are still going to the South for these economic opportunities, which is, you know, kind of a good and bad thing. You know, we've got so many jobs in part because there aren't a whole lot of um, res- restrictions on on employers. So business can do can, whatever the hell it wants in the South. <laughs> right. You, you can have jobs. That doesn't mean that they're great jobs. It uh, doesn't mean that it's fixing poverty, but you, you, you count towards the you know, employment numbers. So we have that. In the Midwest, people are losing jobs. As we've discussed, they're going overseas. A.L. Smith is kind of the centerpiece of this story. It is in the heart of a neighborhood called the 53206. The 53206 is the zip code with the most incarcerated black men in the country. And you can, historians and sociologists attribute it to the fact that Wisconsin has created, has replaced a jobs program. Um, economic opportunity with essentially an incarceration system. So A.O. Smith ended up selling off its operations. They had a huge automotive unit. They sold the automotive unit to Mexico. They sold some of their operation to um, manufacture to Tower Automotive. Tower Automotive ended up shutting down. They moved part of their um, facilities to China and you know other areas of, of East Asia. So it's the typical deindustrialization story that we hear of, and we see how it's impacting the day-to-day lives of Black people there. If you talk to some folks there, you know, they've got family from the South. They're talking about relocating. So they're going through extreme economic, uh, an extreme economic crisis that you're not seeing to the extent in the South. We're suffering everywhere. There's no doubt about it. But the South is seen as a place with more opportunity than the Midwest, and folks are leaving because of it, if they can leave. Half of the Black male population in Milwaukee has gotten involved in the incarceration system um, over the course of you know the last 20, 30 years. So there is a lot more despair and a lot less economic opportunity. You write that, that Bernie Sanders performed better amongst Black voters in the North than in the South, where he did really poorly amongst Black voters, and better in Wisconsin than anywhere. Mm-hmm. What does that reveal about the diversity of Black voters across the country in terms of what we've been discussing and also in terms of the way that different po- 
political economic contexts lead to changes in in political culture and forms of community organization in, in different places? I think it shows that we, like I uh, mentioned before, we're not a monolith. So, and, you know, folks are very pragmatic. So I don't think it is a super complex idea. If you're speaking to the needs, the material needs of people, they will be drawn to your message. They'll be drawn to you as a candidate. No doubt Hillary Clinton got 70% of the voters in, um, of the black voters throughout the Midwest for the most part. But I think there's something to be said that Bernie Sanders did better there among black voters than anywhere else. I think his messaging really struck at the core of people's reality. Instead of saying, you know, America is already great, that you have, you know, nothing to lose he was saying, America has failed a lot of you, and I think we should do something about it. And to me, I think it is pretty monumental that he was able to even get 30% of the vote when people didn't even know he, who he was, maybe just a few months prior to that year at the most. And Hillary Clinton has been in you know, the public sphere for, what, 20, 20 30 years um, in public consciousness, and he still managed to squeeze out um, a good number of votes from from black people there. And as you mentioned, and what I talked about in the article, he's got he got 31 percent of the black vote in uh, in Wisconsin, which was higher than anywhere else. So, you know, I'm not a data scientist. And so I'm not going to pretend that there's any sort of causation. But I do think that there is a correlation between people's economic experiences and their feelings of disillusionment and finding that there is someone who recognizes why they're disillusioned and is speaking to that. And they're speaking on free healthcare and free education. They're speaking to job guarantees. And well, I don't know if that was a, a an issue at the time, actually, but it is an issue now. And, and Black Midwesterners are interested in those things. I went back to Milwaukee and I talked to them about like this new wave of progressivism. And they're interested in these policies. So to be able to speak to that is very crucial. And if you're not using that vocabulary, you know, politics is, is limited. I'm not going to pretend that it's a panacea um, in any sense of the word, but it can get some things done. And if people do see that there are some policies that can mitigate their situation to a, to a degree, then they're going to they're going to believe in you. And he was able to do that better in the Midwest than in the South. So for them, I don't think Bernie Sanders was a was a foreign entity. You know, the the idea of socialism, or at least some of the programs that socialism has given us, are or kind of this um, this commitment to union organizing and collective bargaining is not foreign to Black Midwesterners. And in fact, you know, a, a number of the people that I talked to were of the Black men that I spoke with. We're in unions. Um, I interviewed a gentleman by the name of Wendell Harris, who is a democratic socialist. He was kind of taken under the wing of Frank Zeigler, who was a socialist mayor in Milwaukee. And he was the, the president of the black uh, trade unionists. So this tradition, I think, uh, definitely, definitely has some bearing on, you know, how people are kind of aligned and how they view 
these more progressive, uh, more progressive policies and values. You write that, quote, the common refrain is that the Democratic Party has to appeal to white swing voters if they want any chance of success in 2020. But that for the Democratic Party's success, it would seem that trying to secure one's own base would be a more certain bet than adjusting to the whims of swing voters or convincing those who generally vote for Republican candidates. I think that's absolutely correct and that your story powerfully demonstrates this. Explain why it is that what you make of this emphasis on trying to pick off the elusive swing voter or to convert the affluent white suburban woman who's put off by Trump instead of looking at this massive collapse in support amongst black people in their base. We have a, a liberal media, a media establishment across the board that centers white stories. That is what happens when you're in a white supremacist society. So I think anything that happens to white people is going to get the most attention. I think what also happened is a misinterpretation of what happened in the Midwest. Again, if people are assuming that, you know, it's a very superficial reading of the swing state votes, which is since Trump won, then, oh, okay, obviously we must appeal to white conservatives now. But he won by getting the same margins as Mitt Romney, who lost, and George Bush and Reagan. And he got about the same percentages of white voters as any Republican has gotten since Nixon. So if you have that sort of misreading and you're already kind of empathetic to uh, the white working class, which is generally treated as mutually inclusive to the erasure almost of everybody else in the working class, then you're going to come out with this sort of prioritization of white interests. As an anti-capitalist, who has aligned with socialism for years, I think it's important to always recognize that capitalism fails everybody or at least the masses of people. I think most people don't benefit from capitalism. So um, this idea of, you know, I guess centering white people or centering black people, I think we need to center the poor um, and make that inclusive across race, center the working class and make that inclusive across race. I don't think white people deserve any more attention than black people do. That doesn't mean that white people should get, you know, more of the attention. And I don't think that black people should get more of the attention either. Uh, I do think, however, that because of our circumstances, you know, not by, um, by, you know, happenstance, but our circumstances have, have led to the fact that we do need to look at how disproportionately black people are being affected by, economic crisis and by capitalism in these Midwestern states. Malaika Jabali, thank you very much. Thank you. Malaika Jabali is a Brooklyn-based public policy attorney, writer, and activist whose writing has appeared in Glamour, Essence, The Root, and Current Affairs. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once remarked after noting that labor cannot emancipate itself in the white skin wherein the black it is branded. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. 
we are posting new episodes every week, usually twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Logan Dreher. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you chatting with people about this show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this thing up and running. Even a few bucks is a huge help.